Editing this week's episode brought me incredible joy. Maybe because I got my second vaccine dose this week, so I'm feeling all around joyous. Maybe because I delivered a year-long project on Monday, so I'm free and easy for a bit. Or maybe because my guest, Erica Vanstone, was pure delight. She addresses things I've been thinking about lately, like sports or physical activity for non-professional athletes, the importance, or not, of sports right now, increasing diversity in sports organizations, and patriarchy in sports. Since Erica is the executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, we also talked about roller derby, a sport I have a secret interest in. Hello, this is Hear Her Sports, long-form intimate profiles of female athletes breaking boundaries, speaking up, and living with power and confidence. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. It is great you are here with us. Enjoy the conversation. Tell your friends about it. And thank you to everybody for all the congratulations about last week's 100th episode. It really felt monumental, and you had a big part in that. Support the podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash hearhersports. Today's guest is Erica Vanstone. Erica is the executive director of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, WFTDA, the international governing body for the sport of roller derby. The WFTDA's mission is to revolutionize women-led and gender-expansive-led spaces in sport. With an undergraduate degree from NYU Film, Erica used her communications and production experience in founding WFTDA-TV, the WFTDA's first broadcast program. She later earned a Master of Science in Sports Business from Temple University and has secured partnerships with the organizations such as ESPN, UN Women, Twitch TV, and the BBC. Most recently in 2020, Erica worked with community epidemiologists to develop comprehensive COVID-19 guidelines for the return to play featured on Samantha Bee's Full Frontal and established the Art Project, an organization-wide anti-racism re-envisioning process to dismantle racism in the WFTDA. Based in Philadelphia, PA, she skates for Philly Roller Derby and coaches in the organization's youth program, Philly Roller Derby Juniors. Welcome, Erica. I have really been looking forward to talking to you, so thanks for making the time to be here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So, you know, if you don't mind, I'd love to just start out by talking about the sport. You know, could you describe what it's like to be a roller derby athlete and, yeah, what it's like to skate on that tiny track? Uh, Yeah, so what's interesting is that I did not start out as an athlete and... It was because I was intimidated by the idea of strapping on skates and getting out onto a track and hitting other humans. I started as an announcer and really spent a lot of time trying to cultivate how I talked about the game first, right? So I, I, I did a lot of learning about the game. I did a lot of trying to figure out the rules as best I could. I officiated. And around the time that I started being involved with the sport as an announcer, I was also going through a divorce and found myself a single parent. So I kind of made this promise to myself. I said, I'm not going to play the sport until I'm in a position where if I get injured, it's not going to become an overwhelming burden to myself or, or my, my child at the time. And so over the years, I gradually met my husband, we expanded our family and felt finally, I didn't have any more excuses to try to play the sport. So once I did, it was just, it was life-changing as I kind of expected it to be. Women are not 
uh, in particular cisgender women, are not raised in the idea that contact sports are something that most parents or community members want to drive you into, right? Like, I think the way little cisgender boys are kind of sort of funneled into contact sports, they're funneled in, specifically in America, they're funneled into football. And that's not necessarily the conversation that a lot of parents have with their young cis daughters. So I certainly didn't grow up with that in my head. But what I did see is just the way the sport had transformed the lives of the women in my league and the women who were playing this sport. And it is because you're asking yourself to do something with your body that like no other sport or situation is really asking you to do. It is asking you to fall. It is asking you to, to be injured. It is, it's asking you to get bruised and get back up. And there's something about the resilience of that experience that rings true for a lot of women. So the sport is really a contact sport that's played on quad roller skates, and it is a high-scoring game. Each team has a point scorer called a jammer, and essentially the jammer's job is to get past opponents. And for opponents that the jammer passes, there are points awarded. So that is how the scoring mechanism of the game works. And of course, it gets very complicated from there, like any other great sport would. You know, I want to go back to you starting being an athlete in roller derby. You know, once you had started, did your impression of being involved in a contact sport change? Like, how did your uh, relationship to the injury, to the contact, to the bruising, how did that change after actually being in it? Well. I have been fortunate enough to have not broken anything yet, knock on wood. <laughs> but like early on, I definitely experienced a pretty significant knee contusion that continues to haunt me to this day. And I think I surprised myself with how how I was stronger and more adept at working through pain than I thought I would be. And I say that because I think I finally had that realization Maybe two or three years ago, I was playing in a game in one of the tournaments that we put on in Philadelphia, and I took a shoulder to the nose, and I was sitting on the bench, like bleeding out of my face, and the EMT was probably 60 seconds from putting me in the ambulance and taking me to the hospital to cauterize my nose. And all I could think about was, I want to get back in this game. I want to get back in this game. I'm having such a good game. I just want to get back out there. And I think it really, the joy and the high of playing the game overrides any type of pain that I, I felt or trauma that my body was experiencing. And by and large, I think that that is what draws other athletes to the game, right? It's, it's the idea of the pain is actually scarier than the pain itself when you're in the moment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that was my thought was, you know, like our our fear of what's going to come is worse than actually what happens. It is. And and my bench managers were like, Erica, you're not getting back in this game. <laughs> like you're <laughs> hemorrhaging from your face. What are you thinking? But I, you know, I think that that's like, that is probably a consistent refrain you would hear from other athletes as well. Sure. So what have you been doing this past year to keep up with skating, to keep up with fitness? 
Yeah, you know, it's been difficult. I, as the executive director of the uh, WFTDA, the entire organization is remote. So we feel like the pandemic was actually um, not as big of a challenge for us to work through in terms of our working style because every every staff member is remote. But I think one of the challenges for me as, a, as someone who works from home is putting the work down uh, because I'm always here. I'm always in front of a computer. I'm always available. And so for me, I really probably in the beginning of the summer, I realized that I hadn't done as good of a job in managing sort of my overall fitness and stress level as I, as I should be. A lot of skaters over the course of the pandemic, of course, you probably have seen a lot of the media and uh, TikTok videos around how roller skating has become so popular yeah. again. And so some colleagues that we work with, in particular community and bowls, have sort of developed this entire community of park skating roller skaters. And it's essentially the same thing as skateboarding, right? Like you you go to a skate park with your roller skates on instead of a skateboard. And you you really run all of these obstacles and you, you kind of uh, execute these tricks and you ride these bowls. That was another another challenge for me where, you know, I put me out on a flat surface and I can skate for hours, but put me in a skate park where there are all types of like gravitational challenges. And that felt like a completely new challenge that I wanted to approach. So what I've been doing is over the past several months, really pushing myself to do different things with my skating in the hopes that when we're able to get back on the track, I have a few, a few more tools in my tool bag as a skater to be able to use. I bet that helps because I was watching some videos in preparation and there's a lot of hopping and jumping over stuff, mostly bodies, but, you know, yes. so being able to do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, pre-pandemic, let's pretend that we're back there. What were practices like? My understanding is they're quite intense and frequent. Yeah. So in Philly, we had, I think we had four total possible practices you could go to every week plus juniors. And I have a 13-year-old son who is in the juniors program. So I coached him every Sunday. So typically I would go to Sunday practice and coach for the juniors. And then Monday we had our all-stars practice, which I would go to. And then Wednesday night was scrimmage night. And that was optional, but encouraged. And then Thursday night would be sort of a league practice where we would work on skills and strategy. And so typically three to four days a week, I would be out there practicing. And to, to be totally honest with you, I miss that level of intensity in fitness. And I went to my primary care physician recently for something, and I noticed that my blood pressure was just a little bit higher than it normally would be. Oh, interesting. And yeah. so I feel like I'm looking forward to getting back to that type of conditioning. Yeah. I saw somewhere, I'm sure it was in preparing that somebody said you didn't have to be that fit to do roller derby. And I just was looking and thinking, it doesn't look like the case. You guys all look like in excellent shape. Yeah. And I think we are actually really excited to kind of expand the conversation around what fitness actually means. Because mm. I think, you know, women and in particular women in sports are definitely sort of taught to think about 
physical body types in this very specific way. And I think what's wonderful about roller derby is that we're expanding the idea that all shapes and sizes can have a high level of fitness. It doesn't mean that because, you know, you're shorter or taller that you have different skills and you, you will have different skills and abilities that are just as valuable. And it doesn't necessarily need to look like this sort of patriarchal standard for what fitness or beauty should look like. I mean, if you look at any product that's geared towards women and fitness in the American market, there is this very specific, like toned, but very thin body type Absolutely. that is sort of marketed. And that is not what we're about at all. That's one of the main attractions to me about roller derby. Yeah. And I think that is... That is really our value is to be able to offer the opportunity for people to compete at whatever level they choose, at whatever fitness level they are. We, we meet people where they are. And that's not typically the conversation that a lot of women's sports or, or sports in general have with their constituency. Well, I think it's also acknowledging that a team is made up of people that have different skills and abilities. Like if everybody had the same skill and ability, you'd be missing out on, on yeah. a lot. And, you know, all sports need that. But I think there's often that's not often talked about, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think we we recognize that athletics are typically offered to people who present certain gifts and abilities and like in, in this very patriarchal way. Right. I think the power of what we do is that we, and I use this analogy a lot, actually. I'm a big fan of the Disney Pixar movies and the movie Ratatouille. There's this chef who has the line, anyone can cook. That's his mantra. And I feel the same way about roller derby. Anyone should be able to do this. And we really are excited about the idea of meeting anyone where they are and offering them this opportunity. I am assuming that somebody who shows up and hasn't done roller derby doesn't immediately go out there and start competing. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> the WFTDA had kind of left it somewhat up to leagues to sort of teach some of these beginner skills. And we started to put a little bit more structure around that this past year when we released This is Roller Derby, which is our first sort of beginner's curriculum that we're looking to cultivate over time. And I think being able to, you know, there's quite a few things to teach about roller derby because it is a complicated rule set. And it's, you know, you're also roller skating. I think we're aware that it takes quite a bit of time for someone who has never skated before or someone who has never played a team sport before to be able to put on roller skates and figure out like how to navigate the world as a skater and then how to play the game. So yes, we have a pretty intense set of conversations going around beginner curriculum. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we actually have quite a robust safety program as well. So we have our own risk management guidelines that talks about sort of how you can set up the track safely, making sure that folks are wearing appropriate gear, and we've really structured everything to favor the pro-safety conversation. Well, preparing to talk to you also, I was really, I guess I was struck by the scope of the sport. You know, it's an international organization. 
it's actually a big organization. And right now I'm thinking about that in terms of your COVID response. I mean, you're having to mm. take into account like different countries and languages and different, you know, vaccine protocols and all that stuff. So talk a little bit about how you're managing that and managing the size and, you know, related to COVID if, if that helps. Yeah. Um, I can't believe it's been a year, yeah. <laughs> but we have clubs, uh, we call them leagues, but we have clubs that operate in over 23 countries. And we say over 23 countries because sometimes skaters live in one country and skate for another, but it's 460 clubs worldwide. And so we're talking about 23 countries. And some of those countries, like the United States and Canada, have either states or provinces and so if we contemplate all of those different areas, there were so many different types of guidelines and pieces of information that were coming out at once that it was incredibly overwhelming. And as a U.S.-based organization, we kept waiting for the federal government, for the CDC to come forward and say, okay, this is what we want sports to do. This is what we want amateur sports to do. And it was a deafening silence from the Trump administration. So we essentially sat down and said, you know what, we're on our own here. We started just a sort of a chat area in our platforms around getting as much information as possible from as many different countries as we possibly could. Uh, and of course, I think one of the most exciting things was watching New Zealand and Australia's response to COVID-19. Because it was exactly, it was what we were hoping for in the U.S., you know, and it didn't happen. So we found ourselves in a similar position, I think, to a lot of other European countries like Italy, where there was just such unmitigated, wildly uncontrolled spread of the virus so quickly that we knew we had to shut everything down. We just didn't know how we could sort of advocate for our members to start back up again. So we put the call out for epidemiologists and frontline workers. And of course, Roller Derby is a community of all different types of professionals. So we got amazing epidemiologists and professionals who we put together in a COVID medical team. And they are really the true heroes of this conversation. They essentially helped us put together sort of the, the magic number of 50 and 100,000 cases over 14 days as sort of a baseline metric that we were looking at as quote unquote safe. And I think that that's what like, that's the piece of the conversation that took the longest, figuring out how much COVID is too much COVID. Because the reality is that unlike soccer or baseball, which is played outside and might mean that you could conceivably wear a mask and be okay. Roller derby is a contact sport. It's a very sweaty contact sport. Wearing a mask isn't going to help you because your face is essentially pressed up against the body parts of other uh, opposing teammates and whatnot. We knew that we couldn't necessarily, in good conscience, send people into their games wearing masks and think that that could contain COVID-19. So what we really needed to do was figure out what is the baseline amount of COVID in any person or any club's area that would signify that the infection is under control. So we came to this metric and then we built a plan that has seven tiers that leagues can essentially get on like a ladder. 
where they are able to follow our guidelines. And thankfully, to this day, we have no reported cases of COVID from roller derby. Well, you know, I, I want to emphasize that that your stance is really impressive that, you know, you didn't think anyone getting COVID as a result of playing roller derby was tolerable. And I can imagine that that was probably difficult to implement and stand by long term because you guys are such a community organization, community sport. And I'm just thinking about my own personal experiences that, you know, I've been pretty restrictive. Yeah. And there are times where I think, oh, you know, no one else is doing this. But, you know, particularly for athletes, I mean, there there are possible long term impacts from the disease. And who knows? Exactly. And I think, you know, we feel really fortunate to have found a small community of supporters outside of roller derby. And I think there are other people out there in the sports world who feel the way that we do. And it took us a little bit of time to find them. But I think, you know, our guidelines were definitely more strict and continue to be more strict than some municipalities and governments that are managing their returns. And I think that, you know, we know that. And I think that's a very difficult conversation. So to your point about it being a little bit of a tough sell within our community, to some extent, yes, because people just want to play roller derby. Of course. But when we get them to step back and think about the implications, like everybody agrees, no, we don't want anyone to die because they're playing roller derby. Or we don't want roller derby to be responsible for any deaths. Like, I think everybody agrees on that. And so that's really the point that we're trying to, to communicate from and to work from. And in the United States, there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. Again, we are a global organization. Roughly 75% of our membership is in the United States and North America. And these, I think, are the leagues that have been among those who are kind of suffering from the pandemic the most. because. Like there are areas of Europe, there are areas, certainly Australia and New Zealand hasn't stopped playing at all, but there are areas of Europe that were able to come back, for example, over the summer, and then they had to shut down again as spikes were happening. But my league and a lot of leagues in the US, nobody's been playing for over a year. So certainly everybody is ready to get back to roller derby. And I think we're eyeing the vaccination process in the same way that I think, you know, maybe school systems are or other types of larger organizations that depend on numbers being low to function well. We're not there yet, right? Because there are spikes in certain areas. But every day, the vaccination conversation, I think, is getting better and better. And it offers us hope, not necessarily that we're looking to get everybody vaccinated, we are definitely encouraging people to get vaccinated, but we know also that the more people who get vaccinated out there in the community, the lower the transmission then becomes as well. And so that's really what we're looking at. And how are you staying on top of things? And will there be, you know, like sort of a organization wide start when, for example, you think in the United States things are ready to go or will it be league by league? We're going to work league by league or club by club over the next couple of months because we're also in the midst of an anti-racism transformation process within the organization that started last summer. 
And one of the things that we've been really thinking deeply about is whether or not the competitive circuit that we've created is equitable. Because we've had 460 clubs globally, and this one ranking system that essentially ranks all of these teams from number 460 to number one. And it is required that these teams travel sometimes really big distances to be able to compete in our competitive pathways. And we want to really take a look at that to make sure that the way that we're structuring this is fair to people because we're an amateur sport. And if we're asking, you know, if people are putting second mortgages on their house just to travel to play our sport, that doesn't feel equitable to us. There really are two pretty good arguments for us taking it very slowly and allowing each region to guide its own recovery. I'm glad you brought up your anti-racism work, which, of course, includes the art project, which I definitely want to talk about. And, and all of that started in this past year of COVID. So what have you been doing during this past year? And I'm hoping that you'll talk about the art project. Yeah, I mean, the the thing I think is important to know about the WFTDA is that we are not perfect. And so when our community members tell us that we're getting something wrong, the wonderful thing about our organization is that we don't we don't claim to be perfect, but we listen. And when there's a meaningful ask about something, we act. So following the murder of George Floyd last summer, we got a lot of information from our community about where we were failing our black skaters, where we were failing our skaters of color, where we were failing to get out of this very white cis culture that we had created. And it was unintentional. You know, I want to I want to be clear that when the founders of this sport sort of got together in Austin, Texas in the early 2000s and essentially created a flat track to branch off of bank track they weren't thinking about any of this. They weren't thinking about how big the sport would become. They weren't thinking about, you know, international governing bodies versus national governing bodies. They just wanted to compete in this thing and enjoy themselves. And so that was the spirit through which we continued to grow and grow. But it was still and continues to be this very sort of white cisgender system. And I think that we recognized right away that we needed to change up the way we were doing things. And part of the reason that we sort of remain in this sort of white supremacy culture soup in the organization is because most of leadership is white. <laughs> and the only way for us to get outside of ourselves was to bring in humans who had very different lived experiences than us to be able to guide us in seeing where the systems were failing them. We created the art project, the anti-racism team project. Kimberly Eisen is our member services manager, and she really spearheaded the initiative from within. And we put together this proposal and put a call out for panel members who were going to be compensated for their perspectives on how and where our sport needed the most reworking from an anti-racism lens. So we started the call last August, and we officially started the art project phase one in the fall. And phase one was really just trying to narrow down what 
the most pressing issues were and what steps could really be done in the most meaningful way to have the biggest impact, to sort of widen the circle to as many humans as possible, to kind of guide us out of that place of the white supremacy culture that we're, those systems, you know, and I think people think of racism often who are white, right? White humans think of racism, and I've seen it sort of portrayed this way and discussed this way, as they, they, they hear the word racism and they think that there is some direct intent behind it. And that's not the case. And I think that that's one of the things that we're looking to communicate out to our clubs more effectively is that it's the systems that are designed. It's the policies that you have. It's the way that you officiate a game. It's the way that you are announcing that game. All of this together is... Um, I call it a super a stew, right? Like you're continuing to exist in this system that is purposely or not purposely excluding some and highly benefiting others. So I think that's the work that we've been trying to do with the art project over the last few months is to really kind of take a step back, see where the systems are failing people and think about ways that we can construct them in a more equitable way. And so it's been going on for about six months, right? Yeah. Phase one, which was essentially the assessment and analysis phase, was like designed to be around six months. And we're about at that point. And then phase two is going to include task forces. And the task forces have identified these buckets of work that we're really looking to zero in on, like competitive structures. So we're going to spend the next couple of months with the task forces sort of reaching out to community members, reaching out to our clubs and asking really deep questions around how the competitive circuit is designed. You know, I think it's interesting that you call it a soup because, you know, it's not like you can say, oh, everybody should now start doing this and our problems are all solved. I mean, it's such a mishmash. Like, what are you going to address? Yeah. What are you going to be doing? What are you hoping to be doing? you know, like really specifically. Yeah. And specifically, I think there's a couple different levels as well, right? It's it's also important to understand that even when we're redesigning our policy or redesigning our competitive pathways, there's still the personal education that has to go on in order for any of these things to work. Right. So like our, our WFTDA staff is engaged in some really meaningful anti-racism work and dialogue. We're taking webinars, we're keeping workbooks, we're really sort of trying to see the ways in ourselves that we are continuing to perpetuate these systems. So I think education is going to be a key part of the conversation. So we're going to need to find ways to kind of share what we've learned with our clubs as we're talking about how these structures need evaluation and change. And so specifically, I think our competitive pathways, it, it, it all kind of has converged at the same time, our conversation around competition. The COVID-19 response, because it's going to be led sort of by region, it makes sense to us that the art project conversations around making the sport more equitable have really primarily been centered around having uh, regions again. When we first started the WFTDA, we had four regions, uh, and that's how competition was structured. I think there's a really great argument for going back to a regional conversation as far as competition is concerned, 
so that we aren't putting an incredible burden on leagues and clubs and athletes to pay all of this money to travel to participate in our tournaments. So specifically, those are the things that we're going to be looking at. One of the things that I thought about is that, I mean, certainly habits need to be changed for, you know, people who've been, you know, white, cisgender. Yep. But also the other thing is developing the ability to be uncomfortable. I mean, this is not going to always go smoothly. And I think it's important to understand that there, there is no finish line for anti-racism work. It is a practice, you know, in, in the same way that athletes have to train to be good at what they do on the track. You have to consistently think and evaluate the way that you are operating in the world as a white cisgender human. And I don't think that that work is ever done. It is it is a constant practice and evaluation of the way that you operate. What has the response been so far? You know, it's challenging because I think a lot of our clubs and athletes are still trying to dig out of this place of tremendous trauma. Because as much as we think that we've done the right thing with COVID-19, and I think that our clubs have overwhelmingly agreed with us, there's still this sort of feeling of dread and anxiety that we're trying to dig out of as a, as a society that is impacting our clubs as well. They are still trying to figure out, you know, I, I think we've gone through so many uh, and in particular, we we hit a point in the U.S. this fall where cases dropped to a pretty significant level. And some of our clubs were, you know, within stone's throws distance of being able to start back up again. And then going into the winter, the surge became twice as bad as any other time in the year. And everything had to close down again. So I still think that there is this very tentative slow reawakening of our clubs that we're seeing. And I think trying to engage with them is something that we're going to be working on pretty hard for the next two to three months, just to let them know we've got really big things happening. Please come join the conversation. And this might really be the beginning of the end of the pandemic, and we want you to be ready. I would think that, I mean, this is coming from an outside perspective, but because roller derby is such a community, I mean, in, in many ways, it seems more of a community than a sport. That That's fair. This time period must just be incredibly difficult. I believe that is totally true. You know, I think that it has been very difficult for us as a community. And I see it every every day. I see something on social media that someone has posted that says, I just miss roller derby so much. And I agree, you know, I, as I go throughout the day, like one of the things as executive director that had kind of kept me going through all of the stresses of the changes of our organization was being able to leave all of that behind and step on a track and be there for my teammates. And I didn't have that for a year. And I think I, and I'm sure all of our community members are going to be unpacking what that means for a while to come, right? Like it's not an insignificant experience that we've been through together. What I see is an opportunity though for us to come together in a way that is so joyful and celebratory and 
potentially allows us to to really put the value of our community first in a way, which is kind of why I'm glad that you said we're almost a community more than we are a sport. I really think that that's what we're going for and that's what our value system is. And that's what we celebrate as athletes and community members is that there is, there's another person out there who knows exactly how you feel. Right. Right. You know, do you know why roller derby developed this community? Like how did it develop that way and become that? You mean, how did it become so community focused? Yeah. I mean, where did those values come from? I mean, I also relate it to the work that you're doing with the art project and other inclusivity work. I mean, you certainly don't see that in every sport. Yeah. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we at first weren't necessarily seen as a sport to begin with. Like coming out of the bank track roller derby movement of the 60s and 70s, there was a theatrical aspect to it. There was sort of this big, larger than life spectacle aspect to it. And coming into flat track in the early part of the 2000s, a lot of skaters and athletes sort of celebrated that and and brought that into what they were doing. There was a joy in being different than every other sport. And then I think we felt a little bit laughed at (laughs) because of it. And we recognized that if we wanted to bring people into the conversation, we kind of had to communicate with them on their level to some extent. And I think that that's what my goal with creating the broadcast program was to really think about roller derby in how other people view other sports and how other people watch other sports. Because I wanted... I wanted the effort to be taken seriously, I guess is the best way I can describe it. But, you know, over time, we've realized that the sports landscape is this very patriarchal place that I'm not sure is ready for us. (laughs) You know, I'm not (laughs) sure that they're really ready to understand all the values that we're bringing in the same way that I think mainstream major league sports underestimated gaming and esports. There's a very similar sort of conversation and trajectory to be had where there's a population of people who've been marginalized and left out of the competitive conversation who just gravitated towards one another and created this community. So in some respects, I actually see esports and and online gaming as sort of a like a little bit of a cousin to kind of the way that we developed hmm. as a sport really feeling like the marginalized or outcast or not entirely understood or accepted sport that we are. Since you coach juniors, like how do you see roller derby in relation to sports that are typically offered at schools? And I'm sort of taking because I heard a quote that you were talking about, you know, mostly basketball or soccer is offered and you know, as we talked about earlier in the show, there's so much more that makes an athlete or can be an athlete. And what have you seen in your coaching? Yeah, and I I really have to give a lot of credit to the Junior Roller Derby Association, JRDA, 
And I feel pretty fortunate because the president of the JRDA, Brett Rogers, his kids are in my program or they have been in my program in Philly. So I feel really grateful for the relationship that I have with him and with JRDA because we're able to throw things past each other a lot and say, well, what do you think about this? Or how, how are you managing this conversation? The children have taught us the most about how we need to structure our programs. And I think a really good example of that is the way that the juniors have structured an open division. And this open division does not ask your gender. Every single kid who qualifies and who tries out for it and is accepted on a team is able to play. So you've got these really exciting, dynamic, powerful teams of kids that are made up of all genders. The games are thrilling to watch. The kids adore playing with each other. And if you ask them, in particular, the league in Philly, like all of these kids just really love playing together. And they've created a camaraderie and a relationship with one another in a sports environment that is really sort of led and directed by them, as opposed to I think the typical sports experience that I had playing sports growing up was very coach down, right? Like it was Mm -hmm. very top down, like coach says, do this, drop and give me 20 pushups, you know, and sometimes we'll do that just for fun. But primarily, we're really trying to guide each individual athlete on the team because the thing that's pretty special about it, too, is that at any given season... Like my son, the 13-year-old, is a perfect example. Like the next time he plays roller derby, he's going to be at least a foot taller than the last time. (laughs) And that's like the sort of dynamicism of kids growing and changing is also a really exciting part of the conversation of youth sports. And, you know, seeing a child who wasn't able to get through a wall of their really like taller teammates during a practice one season and then come in and completely eliminate that wall the next season is really interesting and fun and powerful. And I think all of the kids are really excited to work with each other. And it doesn't matter what gender they are. They are placing teamwork and community for themselves above the competitive experience as well. I also imagine that they'll leave knowing how to be an athlete or how to be physically active and remain that way because they haven't been coached in the way that you were talking earlier. Yeah. And I think what's uh, it's also exciting because kids are able to progress at their own level. And some of them take that more seriously or train differently than others do. And I think that I've seen some kids graduate and go on to like really great college programs. Um, I remember one of my proudest moments, one of the juniors I coached who is sadly graduating from the program this year, emailed me one one year and said, hey, can I use you as a reference so that I can become a lifeguard at my local swim club? And I said, absolutely. And like a month and a half later, she'd already rescued a kid from drowning. It was such a great moment where I was just like, these kids are really special and spectacular and supporting them through roller derby is like the smallest amount of providing a positive experience for them that I that I think I can provide. 
During the pandemic, I've been asking myself and also guests, why sports now? What is important, you know, for your organization, for roller derby and the community? Why are sports important now? You know, I think that that was a really big challenge that we faced when we designed the COVID-19 program, because quite frankly, what we said was sports are not important now. Sports can take a back seat to people's lives. And we put together a campaign called Lives Before Laces, and we hosted a panel discussion with folks from a few different sports leagues where we all talked about sort of what our approach to return to play looked like or was going to look like. We, again, were very much the odd person out where we were like, we don't want to step foot on a track if it means that somebody could get COVID and die. And so I think that was yet again probably an example where community was more important to us than the competition. Or we knew in our hearts that it had to be prioritized over our ability to hit each other on a track. We did the work ourselves. We put together this program and we really examined and continued to talk about this at a global level when no one else was doing that. So if anything, it wasn't the competition that I think that is necessary out of sport. It is the community and it is the conversation that we're able to have that I think other sectors weren't able to have, like other industries, other levels of government. And in particular in the United States, the Trump administration wasn't having this conversation, but we were. And so I think that that is the value to what we bring regardless of whether or not we're able to skate. Well, we have talked for almost an hour and it's been awesome. Is there anything that I missed that you want to bring up before we say goodbye? Just that we are also incredibly hopeful about the future. And we're also incredibly hopeful about the way that we are coming out of this experience. And so I think, uh, you know, it's the old adage of, like seeing yourself in your darkest moments is really honestly <laughs> who you who you really are. And during one of the darkest moments in modern history, I got to see who roller derby was. And I just cannot tell you how incredibly excited I am for a future without COVID-19 to see what we're all capable of. Thank you for that. Yeah, you guys seem very optimistic and hopeful and I have high hopes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Erica. This has really, really been a great treat to talk to you. And I really appreciate finding out more about roller derby. Thank you for having me. Well, that's this week's episode. Thank you to Erica for sharing all those stories about roller derby. I hope you liked hearing them as much as I did. I'm really curious what you think about roller derby and would you try it? Send me your thoughts to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. And I'm so grateful to you for spreading the word about Hear Her Sports and these wonderful female athletes. We have some great interviews coming up, so stay tuned. In the show notes, find links to things Erica mentioned on the show and many other things roller derby. Subscribe for free to Hear Her Sports on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to join Patreon at patreon.com slash hearhersports and buy all your books through our bookshop page at hearhersports.com slash books. 
While 44% of athletes are women, only 4% of the media coverage is about women. Here, Her Sports aims to shift the scale while inspiring women to be their best. This is Elizabeth Emery for Hear Her Sports. Bye-bye. Excuse me, that's my dog. I'm so sorry. Hold on. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.